you know, we're using the technology to kind of create histories. This is Future Cities, the series that brings together some of the people exploring and shaping what our cities could be like in the future. I'm Dr. Sarah Wise, a lecturer at the Bartlett Center for Advanced Spatial Analysis. And in this first six-part series, we're looking at the future of London, where I'm speaking to you from at UCL, London's leading multidisciplinary university with campuses all over the city, from Bloomsbury to the vibrant communities surrounding Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park in East London and the urban hub of London and Canary Wharf. Episode three is about smart cities. We are living, working, recreating in an ever smarter London with technology increasingly embedded in the city. Is this technological freedom improving our lives or is consumer exploitation enslaving us? Should we resist or embrace urban technology? To help me take on these big questions is Kulvir Ranger, an expert in digital transformation and the Senior Vice President of Strategy Communications for Atcos UK and I, along with my colleague Duncan Wilson, a professor of Connected Environments, also at the Bartlett Centre for Advanced Spatial Analysis. Hi, welcome both of you. Thanks so much for joining me. I'd like to start us off if we could. Um, Kulvir, you used to work in the mayor's office and you were driving the growth of Tech City. Can you tell me a little bit about what that was like? Yeah, I can. But I just want to say, Sarah, firstly, it's been 28 years since I walked into, I would say hallowed halls of the Bartlett, but the Bartlett's not like that. <laughs> and I had a fantastic time. It, it was academically challenging. It was mind-blowing. It demanded growth and it demanded that you learned how to think all things and more that have held me in good stead through my career ever since I then left university. After uh, a stint in management consultancy, almost a decade, in which I was involved actually in a number of infrastructure projects, I did join the mayor's office when Boris Johnson was mayor in 2008. I led the briefs for transport and the environment, but I actually asked the mayor if we could set up a digital office because there was just an explosion of innovation, of excitement, of energy going on around technology. And also, I have to say, at that point, number 10, then Prime Minister David Cameron, were also pretty excited about this agenda. So there was a lot of political will, which always helps. But actually, the real challenge was that there was a lot of good ideas and a lot of people getting involved in new technology. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's something that I've also seen within an academic context. Um, Duncan, can I ask you, you have been active throughout this period as well, and I know that recently you've been doing work around the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park, but you've also been doing some work with the Internet of Things. How does that fit with your work? I, I, I spent the sort of 20 years working in industry for people like um, Arup and uh, tech companies like Intel. And across all of that time, what we were basically doing is looking at how, kind of how we can sense and monitor our built environment in the, in the broader sense. So this was ranging from things like monitoring the wobbly Millennium Bridge, if you remember that, back in the early 2000s, um, through to monitoring things like air quality uh, across Enfield and, and other boroughs across London, and things like uh, accounting people in offices, which is kind of obviously a, a, a pretty to topical subject at the moment as we start to look at how many people are getting back into the workplace. But I did recently join UCL after a decade or so of being on the industry side, kind of collaborating with them uh, to, um, three years ago, I ended up joining joining as academic staff. And we, and we joined to set up this new program around connected environments, as we're calling it, which is a new master's program 
that's part of the the kind of fantastic UCL East development um, that UCL is doing at the moment. I, I guess why that was really exciting to me was because we're essentially kind of setting up this uh, what we're calling kind of IoT infrastructure or this, um, this this idea of a living lab in the campus. And what what we're trying to do is kind of have this uh, this sense of I suppose it, we think of it as data being this material that we can work with. You know, so it's something that we can kind of craft and prototype with. And for me, it's that kind of, if you like, connectivity that gives us a new way to um, explore and understand our built, um, and I'd say, and our natural environment as well. So when we're talking about kind of cities, um, it's not just the, the concrete built form, it's also the natural environment. I'm curious, you guys have used a, a bunch of language around the sort of presence of data, the creation of data, the curation of data. And, you know, the context of this is this conversation about smart cities. You guys are talking specifically about London. Would you say that London is already a smart city? I, I kind of flinch at the phrase now, smart city. Uh, <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of people do as well, because it, it, it got to a point where a, everything was becoming about smart. Smart was being put in front of every term, you know a smart coffee even, a smart water. You know, we had smartphones, we had smart cities, we were, we were going down this route and it became almost a marketing term, which is fine. But what did it actually mean? What were we doing? Were we adding a dollop of technology to an activity for a reason? What were the improvements we were getting? And actually, were we dividing things, services from being dumb and smart, which is which is not, you know, the way I was hoping things would evolve. I think, I think that the, the terminology around being a future city or being a city in the future is something that interests me more than talking about it being smart, because cities have been smart for quite a while. Yeah, and I, th- and I, think, I, I think as well, there's, there's also this idea that, that smart equals technology. And, I, and I'm, I'm not sure if I necessarily always put those two things um, together. So, for example, you know, when I think about London being a, you know, a smart city, you know, I, you know, I kind of think back to 1637 when, when, when Hyde Park was designated as public space. Now, that was a really smart decision, wasn't it, to be able to create this fantastic urban asset, um, you know, the lungs of London, as they, as they used to be called, and, you know, imagine kind of having that kind of foresight as to kind of see kind of how beneficial that kind of asset is within an urban environment. Um, you know, I also often give the example of, of the Oyster card as a kind of as a really good example of a, you know, of a, of a technology that has sort of transformed a city. But I tend to focus on the, the kind of the move after the Oyster card, which was to allow me to use any of my debit cards to be able to manage that transaction. And, and for me, that then... It just made that technology kind of disappear, which, which you know, which for me is a really kind of interesting, interesting kind of feature of it. And so I think we, you know, we often think of of the really clever stuff, you know, not being that smart. Mm. Yeah, you know, the, the kind of um, the one sensor screen that I use pretty much every day is just weather data. It's just the weather forecast. You know, I ride a bike, so therefore it's handy to know if it's going to be raining or not. Um, and I think for me, it, it is that kind of movement from, you know, I, I, the most interesting technology is the stuff that we forget is actually technology because we just use it and kind of accept it. And it, it basically improves our lot around the city. To your original question, Sarah, yes, I think London is a smart city, but I think it has been since 1637. 
it, it became very clear to me actually at City Hall because I had, as you can imagine, a number of companies beating down my door with their latest technology. And uh, invariably, they'd come very excited with what they could do. But I would ask, how does this help me in terms of some of the policy problems and the people problems and the challenges we have in and around city? But they'd go, but my box can do this amazing thing. And there was that gap between yeah. what the technology does and the outcomes that we're trying to achieve. And I think that's where a number of us in where I've gone back into industry to help. Now, I, I work for a large technology business called Atos, um, but there are many large technology businesses. And it's the gap between the technology they're developing and the actual outcomes that we need to see and improve and the challenges we need to make that we're, we're trying to bridge. Because that's where society then benefits. It's not from pure technology, it's from the outcomes. I think on the question of, of bringing together uh, how the sort of policy comes from the use of data, there's a really interesting case study within London that I almost think begins quite a lot of research, which is uh, during the 1850s, there was this, this very famous cholera uh, outbreak where the equally famous John Snow, uh, the researcher, identified what the um, transmission mechanism of cholera was. He very famously removed a pump handle from the Broad Street pump. Uh, and this sort of proved his theory that cholera was in fact waterborne. That was all a theory which came from his extensive research within London, where the newspapers had been publishing the locations of cholera deaths. So you, you have this, this traditional example of public, almost sort of crowdsourced data from a newspaper supporting a policy intervention in a context within London, you know, in 1853, in a way that I think, I think, think in a lot of cases people probably wouldn't say oh well that's a clear example of you know sort of smart city but on the other hand you have the public sharing of data and the application of that data to a local policy question in a really interesting way so but Sarah on that point could I maybe give a slightly more recent example but maybe maybe not as uh, important from a public health perspective but almost because actually cycle hire mm. um, a scheme which I, I, I was tasked to deliver uh, for the mayor. And, you know, we're, we're, lots went on in terms of how we delivered uh, and procured and developed that scheme for London. But fundamentally, uh, when delivering, we wanted to make sure that there was enough adoption of the scheme at the start. Now, you know, you're delivering a scheme at the start, it was only actually 5,000 bikes in the first wave, you know, middle of 2010, we're talking about here. Mm. But how did you have the data to know exactly where the docking station should go, the kinds of um, uh, trips and routes that people were going to take? We could best guesstimate um, from looking at existing cycling, but we also knew there was gonna be a very different cohort of people that would be using a occasional bike to take a short trip. They weren't going to be the traditional cyclists who are sort of committed and using it maybe daily or more often. So we had very little to go on. And one of the things we did do was we didn't launch with all the docking stations in place. We left enough flexibility, but based it around also understanding that if you overlap the cohort of people who were generally going to be first adopters to try the bicycle, um, the cycle high scheme, then they, they would probably be the kind of people who might have a smartphone and might even then download an app. Mm. And if you could get that kind of information out there, you could probably get key data back from them of how they were using it in the very first wave of launch, which is what we then did. We released data 
early pre-launch of where docking stations were. We let developers build apps and we then harvested that information to actually build uh, the scheme out as it evolved. Um, you know, designing in real time how the scheme should be developed. Can I ask you, Kulvir, to sort of go on in that in that same sort of vein and talk about your experience with which smart technologies have worked for London and maybe in contrast where are some gaps that you still see that that need to be developed in your opinion in any major city transport plays a huge part and therefore the integration of a platform like Oyster and then that evolving into uh, other smart devices has been in, in, integral to the success of um, how the city develops because it just opens up so many things. It, it, it interconnected multimodal transport and then the rise of smartphones and the capabilities that they have. But I think where we're heading, that there's two fundamental points I'd probably want to make about this as for the city and probably broader. One is that as individuals, we very much have now created what I call our own personal digital ecosystems. And very quickly, that concept's about having three things. One is connectivity. We, we all pay for a certain amount of connectivity, whereas 5G, Wi-Fi, whatever it may be. We all have our devices, um, our laptops, our smartphones, our, our pads, whatever that may be. So we've got connectivity, we've got devices, and then we've got our platforms. And those platforms are the social platforms that we're all using, you know, whether it's Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera, Facebook even. And, and you put these things together and you've got your own ecosystem that you can then leverage in any way that you want to. But actually, at the moment, it feels it, it's used against us. You know, people are marketing, selling, uh, using our platform to get to us. And I think there's a bit of a uh, how do we enable that us as individuals to get better control of that digital ecosystem that we actually have created for ourselves. And what I think from a city perspective we need to do is ensure that people can uh, locate where they are, um, augment around a localized experience about the city. So that localized feeling of London, the boroughs engaging with citizens, using the platforms that they have, local democracy, local services, local logistics, and that's probably the second point I want to make, because the biggest issue that's dramatically changing, and obviously we can't ignore it, we haven't said it so far, but COVID has turbocharged a number of these trends, has been about how we are now using logistics. And that's, you know, whether it's the delivery of food or whether it's our shopping or whatever it may be. And we need to now look at how do we make that an even more efficient model for us as individuals. Because I think the, the acceleration we've seen over the last year of just deliveries um, has put a different kind of burden on vehicle use and, and, and how the city works. Duncan, can I ask, you're sort of within our department, the king of the Internet of Things. Um, do, you, do you see a very clear way that the Internet of Things could contribute to that kind of sort of localization, that kind of participation um, that I think Kulvir is referring to? Yeah, I mean, I... Mean, I... You know, I, t I tend to always tell our students when we're sort of teaching about these things, you know, it's the Internet of Things. It's just, it's just like technology. It's just a tool that we can use to achieve some goal. And it's the achieving the goal that's the important thing. And I think this this has been driven by a reducing cost in computation um, just generally. You know, we now have very different levels of connectivity available to us, which means, and, and if you put those two things together, it kind of means that we're creating this 
this these new data sources that, that you know in new data in ways that we couldn't before. Um, and this does give us some fantastic opportunities to be able to um, really help us to understand how we are using uh, the built environment um, and the impact that we're having on on that environment as well, maybe the, um, the natural side. Um, but it also helps us to kind of build up the evidence as well, and I, I think that that you know that that to me is kind of one of the key things that that, that you know that we could be doing more of. So, um, for example, um, you know, over in the Olympic Park, we've been we've been monitoring bat populations um, since about 2017. We put the first sensors out, um, and the reason the reason for counting bats in the park, um, we have 15 sensors dispersed around. Um, and they, and they are literally listening in to bat to bat conversation. So we call it we call it the uh, Shazam for bats. Um, <laughs> and we count it, you know. And so, for example, in the peak of the summer, we'll count maybe twenty thousand bat conversations over the course of an evening. Um, but the reason why that's really important or or useful is is because you know within that part of the city, the, 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 there's a whole bunch of regulations around the kind of support of biodiversity in these in these places. So so from a development perspective. And species like bats are really good kind of proxy indicator species for there being good biodiversity. Because if you have bats there, bats are feeding on the insects, which means the insects are there, um, etc. So it's actually an, exa- an example of where the local community is is able to, you know, understand, you know, how that population is working, how that environment is performing, um, but it also allows them to, to take some some kind of control over that local space as well. But one of the really interesting things that's happened is that as open data has grown and communities have sort of taken uh, more ownership over their local data, I think that they feel more involved in local decisions. Um, For example, one of my evacuation models, uh, we were simulating people evacuating to various shelters during a storm. They had never individually as a group mapped Uh, where people would be coming from and in terms of sort of seeing a simulation of their local area with with local data that had come from you know people who had mapped within their community they had a better understanding of how their evacuation plans and their local preparations melded with other people around them and so this particular community group we met with ended up meeting with a lot of other local community groups so the whole region was sort of regionally better integrated and that was possible because of the data which had been created locally and by tools which allowed people who weren't necessarily specialists who weren't necessarily invested in that data originally in being able to use and integrate that data and that information into their decisions and their planning. Sarah you make fantastic points it comes back to your question around you know is London a smart city well, actually, you're only as smart as the decisions that are being made uh, and, and those decisions, whether they're based on data or not. And in this case, we get more data. But I see it more as if London is becoming more digital, then it's about the digital society that we're really talking about. Uh, and, and the three elements around that, that that really concern me in terms of what we need to address for people, with people, are firstly, the fundamental question of security. Because, you know, that's a key element in all of what we're talking about. And sometimes it's kind of left off the table as it's a a vanilla conversation or, of course, there'll be security. But, you know, there's a huge challenge of ensuring that things, services, people's information, data is kept secure. 
uh, and, and I think that's a fundamental element that needs to be front and centre in whatever we talk about. The second has to be accessibility. Uh, and uh, if it's something that's for broader society, then it must be able to be accessible by society. And I think that's something that all businesses, industries, um, public organisations, when working with technology, must keep at the forefront of the thinking the accessibility point. This is a public service or it's a public activity, and therefore the public must find accessibility to all of these solutions. Um, and then the final thing is democratic decision making based on data. Now, we've been through a period of time where people have been talking about we will be guided by the experts and the data. But I still meant that that, that data and that advice does need to be interpreted to get a decision that is a democratic decision and a decision that is, you know, hopefully the best for all. I love your, your triple there of the secure, accessible, and then the democratic decision-making. I think I would also put the emphasis on that on that last bit. It's the thing, it's actually making decisions out of you know out, out of these activities. It's doing something with with that information. I think and I think this is where a bit of the backlash against the you know the constant piloting of things. When you when you pilot things, you can you can kind of avoid having to make the decisions, or you can avoid having to then actually implement the sort of change for real. So, Kulvir, can I ask you in this context to talk about? Are there any other London public services that you uh, think are good targets to make smarter, as it were? Although I think we're not using that word anymore. Yeah, no, you're right. You can't help but say it. But I think, what we, you know, where's technology leading us next? Uh, and if I'm absolutely honest with you, Sarah, it's probably not just that pure lens of public services. I think where we're heading is to this hybrid world of you know, integration of innovation from private sector and public sector to create the right services that people want. And what do I mean by that? Again, I'll come back to my favorite topic of transport and technology. Um, you know, the, the, the rise of apps, Uber, Lyft, whatever we want to call it, the aggregation of services, these things are coming together that people want this to be a sort of integrated approach to transport needs. Some of it might be a public transport basis. Some might be a dollop of those kinds of services. Some might be a cycle or higher element to it. You start integrating and aggregating. And I think that's where the next great step is around, you know, mobility, the personal mobility mix. But I, I would say the second thing is something I've already mentioned earlier, but really is the localness and community. It's going to become ever so important for us. And I, I see that dynamic. We see it shifting because of the way people's work life has shifted through the pandemic. And I think there'll be a, definitely a, a hangover from that, a positive hangover in how we operate in our, the places we live. I think that the kind of services that you're also talking about, Kulvir, in terms of um, the very local services and the sorts of new processes that we're seeing, especially in the, uh, in the consequences of the pandemic, I think that there is a growing awareness at a community level for uh, the need for these kinds of new services, new information, which can be responsive, which captures things like, you know, as you say, how accessible different resources are. Uh, is it something where uh, wheelchair users can conveniently move around? I think that there's more interest in that. And I think that we've seen more community engagement with that. Um, 
But then again, uh, one of the questions people have asked is that while you know, while in this conversation we've been focusing very much on on how uh, this data can be made available to people, how these tools can be made available to people, as we have sort of an increasing range of high tech startups uh, which are trying to sort of gain a foothold, perhaps even a controlling foothold in some of these systems. To what degree do we think that sort of low tech things like a sort of unconnected community store or um, the farmer's market, which isn't um, on any kind of local map, uh, to what extent are those things going to survive? We will always have unconnected things. Most of the things in my house are, are unconnected. Most of the things around my desk are at the moment. Maybe I would put the emphasis on on, on not unconnected, but, but maybe kind of less connected or slower. When, when I was kind of listening to you talking, you know, and I was thinking about kind of the difference between the high tech and the low tech, you know, I, I started thinking about the um, the shiny tech and the subtle and the subtle tech. Um, and I think so. I think I'm. I mean, I'm a technologist, so I, you know, I can't say there's a world with no technology. But I think that I'm, you know, I'm really kind of interested in in the things that that, that, that help us to do things a bit more subtly. I've got an allotment that I go to, and it's there's a fantastic community of people out, out there that are that they're kind of sharing tips and stuff. And and most of that is all verbal. It's all community based, and that's kind of to me is is really powerful you know i kind of went into this about five years ago thinking that i was going to document everything and have spreadsheets for stuff and but it's not you just you you just kind of live and experience this but the one bit of technology that that the allotment has ended up using um is a is the humble weather station and we've got we've got a weather station in the middle of the allotment that i've got connected to a web page and i knew that i was using it but what really surprised me was that other people on the allotment were coming up to me and saying Oh, thanks for the the uh, weather station website. We've been, you know we use it daily, you know, and I th- I thought they were just being nice to me, um, but actually no, they are actually using it, and it's and the, and what they use it for is to know when it's been raining in the allotment because they have a weather forecast for London, but London's quite big, and so it you know it can rain in London but not rain in the allotment is kind of what I'm saying. Um, then then there's, there's a bunch of other projects that we've been doing, so um. um you know, some of my colleagues we work on a project with Hampstead Heath. Um, There's a project called Talking Trees. Um, I should might have got that name wrong, but it was essentially kind of creating some interactive installations that allowed people to um, hear and listen to stories about the trees in Hampstead Heath. And because there's a whole bunch of knowledge from the arborists there that is that is again being handed down from sort of person to person. Um, but some of that has been documented, and so we're, we're kind of capturing some of these narratives around the trees and the, and the role that they play within that environment. Um, but we're kind of, you know, we're using the technology to kind of create histories. I think one of my favourite projects that I've worked on over this past decade was actually one with um, a bunch of schools around around the UK, and this was um, the, the goal of the project was to look at how technology could be used to make the whole of the school. Um, the science laboratory rather than just the science lab rooms and and we got the um, and the school kids were basically designing these interactions and interventions that were being made in the school so they came up with all these ideas and there's there's one group that came up with this idea of having this what they call a 60-year clock and it was it was a measuring device that was measuring in a time scale of 60 years um, and so there was much slower 
sort of data capture. So what they were doing was recording things like the day of the year that the blossom tree blossomed outside reception. And, and so they were capturing one data point a year. Um, and I, I just kind of love that idea of that kind of slow capture of data as well. So it's not all about this you know, high velocity, big data world that we often talk about. I think to frame this kind of smart cities discourse in terms of kind of efficiency and security, which is often kind of where the, the tech companies come from. I think while that you know, does generate useful outcomes, I think it misses the many more creative opportunities, which I think are much more interesting for us. I quite agree. And I'm delighted that consensus in this call seems to be that a community-oriented smart city is, is the way of the future. Thanks, you guys, so much for being a part of this conversation. Thank you so much for your interesting answers. You've been listening to Future Cities, brought to you by UCL. If you want to hear more about this topic, please also check out Building Better, the Bartlett podcast, wherever you download your podcasts. This podcast is an Aunt Nell production, and the producer and editor of this episode was the delightful Shivani Dave.